Would you take your Bibles, and we're not turning to Ephesians, but we're going to go to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Now, if that's one you haven't been to in a while, you just go find Matthew, turn left, and go back about three books, and you'll come to Haggai in the Old Testament. And we're going to be spending some time in uh, these minor prophets uh, through the summer. I'd like to read this passage for us as we begin, uh, Haggai chapter 1, and I also want to give thanks to my mentor and friend, Dr. Walter Kaiser. He was my Old Testament professor at Trinity, and I want to uh, credit him for the ideas for the outline for this particular message today that was uh, one of the books that we worked through as we were students there in seminary. So let me read this for you. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says, that these people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention today to the Old Testament, we come to a time and situation that is different than ours. And I pray that you would help us to understand what you were saying to them in their context and then to make that bridge to help us understand how it applies to us today. And Father, by your Spirit, you can do that. I pray that you would speak through me and guide my words, and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, today, as I mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series that will take us through the summer months. And we're going to be looking at three of the minor prophets at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you haven't spent some time here in a while, you may uh, hopefully enjoy this particular series. We're going to be uh, digging into these books to understand their message. And Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are called post-exilic prophets. In other words, they wrote after the Babylonian captivity, that 70-year period where uh, the people in Judah had been carried off into captivity in this foreign land. And they've now returned, and God has given them some instructions that they are to do and to carry out, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. A little bit of history will be helpful here. You may remember that the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The temple was destroyed. The walls of the city were torn down and made a rubble. The gates were destroyed so that they couldn't be used again, and the city was set on fire. Those that were alive still at that time who survived the siege and the warfare were carried off into captivity in Babylon. Only a few were left in the land, some of the poorest of the people to care for uh, the fields or the crops around it or things like that. But the others who resisted were deported. That was Nebuchadnezzar's policy at that time. And we know from the scripture that this was a judgment from God. Jeremiah and the other prophets had warned the people of Judah to repent to turn from their sin, and they could have avoided this calamity if they had listened, but they rebelled against God, and they refused to listen to Jeremiah. They came up with their own kind of human strategy. They thought the way that to uh, deal with this would be to make an alliance with Egypt, and Egypt would help us against the Babylonians, and we'd be okay. A human solution to a difficult problem, but it did not work. And God brought the Babylonians upon them in his judgment. Jeremiah would walk through the city and he would weep over it. He wrote the book of Lamentations as he wept over its destruction and the appalling things that had happened there. The date that is given for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is the ninth of Av. Av in Hebrew is A-V. It's really the fifth month in the Jewish calendar but it is a very significant date in Jewish history, and there are so many things that have happened or are tied to that date, the 9th of Av. If you were to Google it, you could read the list. It was on that day that Jews traditionally ascribe that when the Israelis came out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, and they came to the Promised Land, It was the date when the spies had returned and given their report on the land, and it was an unfavorable report by the majority who said that there are giants living in the land, and we can't take it, we can't go up there, and the people disobeyed. And it was on this very same date, and as a result, they would spend the next 38 years wandering in the wilderness. It was on this date, the 9th of Av, that the first temple was destroyed. It was on that date in 70 A.D. that the Romans would destroy the second temple. It was on that date in history in 1290 that the Jews were expelled from England. It's on that date in 1492 that the Jews were expelled from Spain. 
It's on that date that Jewish historians tie it back to World War I and the decision that was made between the powers at that time, Germany and Russia, and the pogroms were instituted that would lead to the Holocaust. All of those events in Jewish history are tied to this day that on our calendar would fall somewhere between July 16th or August 15th. Uh, the Jewish calendar is based on a lunar year, and that's why those dates can shift in time. But a sad, sad day in history. The people who survived were now living in a foreign land. In the Psalms, we read that they wept by the waters of the river of Babylon, by the Euphrates, as they thought of all that they had lost. But God had not forgotten his people. God was still at work with the remnant. And what God would do in 539 B.C., he raised up a new king and a new nation, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, would conquer Babylon. And he would issue a decree that would allow the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And amazingly, he would even pay for it out of the Persian treasuries. Now, all of that was prophesied by Isaiah over 150 years before it happened. In Isaiah 44:28, he even names Cyrus, that God says, I am going to raise up Cyrus, my servant, who will do these things. It was an evidence that our God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen, and he is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. So what happens in history when this order is given is that about 50,000 of the Jews return. That's not all of them. That's a small number, we believe, of those who return. They were led by Zerubbabel and Ezra. In fact, if you want the historical setting for this, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah give the historical background for these prophets who spoke at this time. They came back. They built an altar to God, they began to worship, and they began to work on the foundation of the temple, and by the year 536 B.C., the foundation was completed. So they got the foundation, they've got the altar, everything's good to go to keep going on the work. No, it's not good to go. The foundation was completed, and then the work stopped. Sixteen years will pass. Temple's still in ruins. The fire in their heart is gone. The passion for God in that way. The people are content with life as is. They had good intention, but they were distracted by other things, and their heart began to turn to these other projects that they had going on. And I think it is here that we can find a word that speaks to us as well, because sometimes we are just like them. They are like us, and we are like them. Do you ever have times in your life where you have had good intentions and you've started a work only to have it stop? You know, and maybe it's like you've said, uh, husbands and wives, you talk about this is the year. We're going to work on the house or we're going to do this project or we're going to build the deck or we're going to do this paint job. And you have good intentions and maybe you start and then you go, oh, it's a little more than I thought. And the work gets delayed. Or maybe it's good intentions that you have. You say, this is the year I'm going to lose those extra pounds. Or this is the year I'm going to read through the Bible on my own for the first time. Or this is the year I'm going to whatever it is. And you have good intentions and you start and then you stop. And you get distracted by other things. Life is busy. 
often too busy. We have our own families to take care of. We want to be liked by the world. We want to kind of fit in with the crowd. We struggle with sin. We struggle with holiness. We believe God, and yet at the same time, we can struggle with unbelief in some areas. We can trust God here, and we have a little harder time trusting God there, and you know what those are for you. They wondered why God was taking so long to send the Messiah. Some began to doubt that he would ever come. There are people like that today as well, wondering when is our Lord going to return and will he ever come? We can be just like them. We walk with God and then there are times in our life when we can drift. We need reminders. We need the body of Christ to encourage us. We need to hear God's word and obey. So how did God revive the work? How did he get this stalled people to move forward again, enter the prophets? He raised up a man, actually he raised up a few men who would be his spokesman to this generation in this time and he would use Haggai the prophet to call the people to renew God's work. There were four things that he said to them that I think are very helpful for us as well. Number one, he called the people to stop making excuses. Stop making excuses, and we see it in verse 2. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. It's not time. Now, there were two reasons why the work stopped. One reason is that they gave in to fear and intimidation. When the Samaritans living in the area around Jerusalem heard that the Jews had come back and were rebuilding the temple, they didn't like that. And they set out to discourage them. They hired counselors even to work against them. We see that in Ezra chapter 4. And they wrote to Artaxerxes, the king. After Cyrus had died, Artaxerxes comes to power and they write to him and they say, King, you know, you got to know what's going on over here in Jerusalem. I mean, check it out. This is a rebellious people. They've been nothing but trouble in the past, and you don't want them to build this temple and rebuild their city and et cetera, et cetera. And the king looked into it, and the order was given for the work to stop. This order that was given that they should not continue until they had looked into this matter more fully. Not only did the people give in to fear and intimidation, but they were also spiritually lazy. And they began to make excuses why they were not going to do this. Rather than trust God to help them overcome these obstacles, they let the temple remain in ruins, and they worked on their own homes and their gardens and their fields and their businesses and all the other things. And so, you imagine, 16 years they're walking by the temple, and their foundation is there, and everybody can see it. All the unbelievers can see what's going on. They see the piles of rubble all around and no work being done for 16 years. And what do they think about their God? What are they thinking about their commitment, about their faith, about their God's ability to work? It's not good. They made excuses, and they said things like, it isn't the time. When God wants us to do it, he will. It reminds me of when David Livingston, the great Scottish missionary, felt God's call to go to Africa. 
He applied to a mission society at that time in Scotland, and he was discouraged from going. He was told this, young man, when God sees fit to evangelize Africa, he will do it without your help. There were those who believed that, that there was no need to send out missionaries, that God can just do that on his own. He doesn't need you or me, and they discouraged him from going. Well, thank God that David Livingston did not listen to them. He answered God's call, and he went to Africa. And because of his work, and he went as much as an explorer, as a missionary, he began to write and send back, and he would return to Scotland, and he would speak about it. And because of his example and the courageous work he did, the dark continent was opened up to the gospel, and hundreds and then thousands would follow in his footsteps to go and bring the gospel to Africa. It can happen in churches, too. There are times when we in churches can come up with our own list of excuses for why we don't want to do something. John Maxwell, when he was the pastor at Skyline Church in San Diego, came up with a list of the 57 most common excuses he had heard in his years of ministry. They were things like, we've tried that before, or it won't work, we can't afford it, it's not in the budget, we don't have the room, or it will mean more work for us. Or we don't have the people to do that. Or that's not how the last pastor did it. And on and on they would come up with these reasons why they shouldn't do it. Actually, he said having the list was great. It saves a lot of time now. Now when a new idea is brought to the board, somebody just says, number seven, and we go on. <laughs> and there can be times when there are good reasons to wait but at other times, they can just be excuses. And it takes wisdom and discernment to be able to know the difference. And I think back on our church and through the years, different decisions have been made, that sometimes the answer was no as we came before the Lord, or it was a wait. It's not, a, not now, but we prayed. We thought God was leading a certain direction. You know, the... the Signs go up that say, you know what, this isn't the time. And then uh, maybe a year later or two years later, we'd revisit something and everything would fall into place. And it was like we're running to catch up with the Lord and what he's doing. When God speaks, we need to obey. And we need to weigh those things out. Are there good reasons to wait or are we just making excuses? Are we willing to walk with God when he commands us to go. The second thing that Haggai did was he challenged them to set priorities, and we see that in verses 3 to 6. Uh, when you look at, for example, verse 4, again, the Lord was saying, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. That's a phrase or an expression he's going to use four times in this short book. Give careful thought thought to your ways think about what you're doing think about the way you are living and the result of that he said in verse 6 that you have planted much but have harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you put on clothes but are not warm you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it give careful thought to your ways the problem wasn't the opposition. The problem was with their heart. 
They had time to be working on their homes and their fields and their businesses. They were living in fine paneled houses even. Paneled houses? Really? Paneling was usually reserved for royalty. Some of the commentators asked the question, had they actually taken some of the cedar that was intended for the Lord's house and said, well, I guess we're not using it over here. We can just put that in our home so it'll look nice in the dining room or in the living room, you know, and we'll finish this off. The problem wasn't a lack of resources. It was a matter of priorities. And look at the result. The result was economic hardship that we see in verses 5 and 6. A people who are working harder and harder and never getting ahead. They just feel like, you know, we're struggling to make ends meet. We are trying to save up and then the wash machine breaks or the car needs a repair or we're trying to put money aside for this vacation or maybe trying to save up even for your retirement or all kinds of things and there's never enough. It feels like we're putting money into a purse with holes in it. Isn't that a vivid picture? I mean, can't you just, you know, you can, you can see that and you can understand what he's talking about and, and it's just not adding up. It is an example of how disobedience is costly. Often we think about the cost of obedience and Jesus calls us to do that, to count the cost. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And there are consequences of that. And there may be suffering, there may be persecution, there are going to be hard choices that you make, there are going to be things you're going to have to give up to follow Jesus, but the reward is a hundred times as much as anything that you would ever give up. But disobedience is very costly. And sometimes people don't think about that because they don't see it in the direct connection maybe in the same way, but could it be that some of the problems that you and I are facing in our life is because of our disobedience? Wow. That's a sobering thing to think about. You save a little to get ahead, and it just disappears. It's gone. There's a principle here that is taught over and over in Scripture, and that is that God comes first. First in our life, first in our time, first in our offering with what we have, what he gives to us. God's work must come before my work. And Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he was talking about how prone we are to being anxious or worried about tomorrow or what's going to happen, and he tells us, listen, trust me. We as people, we're worried about what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? You know, all these things that are basic necessities of life even. And what does Jesus say we should do? He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Put God first and see what he will do in your life. Have you done that? It's a step of faith to put God first in your giving and to give to him a tithe, to put God first in your plans and to say, Lord, I'm going to take this time where I'm going to start my week with worship or I'm going to start my day in the word. And you make those commitments and you say, God, I want to honor you in my choices and in my thoughts. Don't give God leftovers. You see, no one cheats God without cheating himself at the same time. 
Don't give him leftovers. He deserves our very best. Several of the commentators noted here that sometimes when it comes to the Lord's work, time and money are carefully rationed. And people argue about this or that within the church on whether we should do this or that or all these kind of things. And there's appropriate times we want to be good stewards. We're not wasteful. We're not going to be, you know, kind of spending luxuriously on these things. We want to do it in a way that's appropriate. But sometimes people will skimp and save and try to cut corners and do all these things when we would never do that in our homes. I think about these issues when it comes to, um, you know, even the building projects that we went through as a church. We had to talk about these things. What kind of church do we want to build? What should it look like in this community? What's, what's appropriate and fitting for this community? And the kind of things you think about is that, you know, we want it to be like our homes are in a sense. That if you want your home to have nice carpeting in it, then the church should have nice carpeting. If you want your home to be welcoming and inviting for people to come in, then the church should be welcoming and inviting. It should look on the outside and on the inside like something that is appropriate to the area. It's not extravagant, but it's also not cheap. We're not building a pole shed here to come and worship the Lord. We're building a building where we can come and meet and he can work. And so we made those kind of decisions, and I'm so grateful for the people that were on our building committee or those who helped with the decorating and all those kind of touches, and all of you that were part of the church at that time that said we want to build a building that's going to be attractive to the community and something that honors God, something that's going to last and stand for generations to come even. And that's the thought that went into the design of the sanctuary, our classrooms, the youth center, the gym, all of that. And what a wonderful facility God has given us. I'm very grateful for those who stepped up and who understood that and were part of those decisions. Thirdly, Haggai challenged the people to get involved, to get involved in God's work. And we see that in verses 7 to 12. In verse 7, once again, the Lord said, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber, and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Go and build. Obedience is shown by our actions. It's not just what we say. It's not saying, okay, you know, yeah, I'll do that, and then we never do that. No, obedience, the proof is shown by what we actually do. And do you see here how he says that our obedience honors God and actually brings him joy? It brings him pleasure? It's like a parent who watches their children growing up, and when you see your children doing the right thing without being told, doesn't that bring you joy? I mean, when you see them making good decisions, you see them using their money wisely, you see them being responsible in their choices or making good friendships or being the kind of person who is kind and generous and helpful to others, that puts a smile on our face and it does on God's face as well. Why were they having such a hard time financially? Well, God was trying to get their attention. They weren't living as they should. And look at verses 9 to 11. He said, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields, on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. That God was the one who did that. God was the one who called for the drought on the land. And because of it, their three major cash crops were all suffering. The grain was affected. It wasn't yielding what it should. The wine was affected. The the grapes on the vines were drying up. The oil from the olives on the olive trees, it just wasn't what it should be. There's a connection between the heart and the land. There's a connection between the way we are living as God's people and what's going on around us. The economy, the weather, and world events are all under God's sovereign control. You think back on our nation, and you can look at different points in history, and you can, you know, you can look at the American Revolution and what God was doing. You can look at the Civil War. But take something more recent. Was God trying to get our attention as a nation on 9-11-2001? I sure think he was. That wasn't just a terrorist attack. There was more going on there as well. There was a sense that God had lifted his hand. When you think about the targets that were hit, the World Trade Center, you know, at the heart of American commerce, I mean, what is it that we put our trust in? We say, well, in God we trust. We say that on our coins, but do we really trust in him? Or are we really putting our trust in our economy or our jobs or our securities in what we have and own? And what, it, what got hit on that day when those towers went down and the economy was shaken was pretty severe. Another target was the Pentagon. What is it that we put our trust in? We put our trust in our military might. America's a strong nation. We're a superpower. We've got the best military in the world, and there are times when we put our trust in that, thinking that's going to get us through, when our trust is to be in God. And here our military power has been shaken, and it continues to be challenged by fighting this war against terrorism and a target that keeps moving. And it's tough. And a third target, we don't know definitely what that was, probably the Capitol or the White House, but it was though God said, enough. And that plane went down and it never hit its target. Is God trying to get our attention today? I think he is. I'm not a prophet, but I think he is giving us over to our sin according to Romans 1. There is this handing over at each step when we disobey God. You can see the progression that is there that God gave them over to the hardness of their hearts. And you see that step by step as we turn away from God as a nation, as we harden our heart and we think we can do this on our own and, you know, thank you very much, we'll take it from here and go do this. And we are ignoring the foundations on which our country was built. And we do that to our own peril. But there can be a good thing in these events too. That I think in the days ahead and in the years ahead, it's going to cost us more to be a Christian. I think there's going to be a sifting in the church. I think there's going to be a shaking out of those who really aren't believers, but who may say they are, and those who are true believers and who stand for truth and walk with God and live that out every day. I think the darker our world gets, the brighter the light's going to shine, but it will cost us something. There will be an increase in that kind of social pressure to conform. 
there will be persecution. There may be, for the churches, there may be a loss of tax-exempt status because of our convictions. There may be a time when uh, you may be asked again in the future if that changes to give to the church, and will you give, are you giving because you want the tax-exempt gift credit, or are you giving because this is the Lord's work and you're absolutely committed to it? And there's going to be that kind of shaking and sifting that's going to go on. And those who know their God will shine like the stars in the heavens. There's a bright spot in this book, too. And it's the reason I love this book that Haggai wrote, and it is found in verse 12. Here's Haggai preaching out his heart. Here he is sharing the word of the Lord, and what happened? Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Isn't that a great verse? I mean, I think of how many times in the Old Testament the prophets would preach and speak and call you know, attention to issues and they were totally blown off. And judgment came. But here was a time when they spoke and the people heard the word and they said, Haggai, we will obey. We will do it. And from the governor to the high priest to the villager to the farmer, the people listened and they did what God asked. They feared the Lord and they got involved in the work. They went back to work on the temple. God has called us to be involved in his work too. And will we listen and will we follow him? We use the words in our church to describe that. The words worship and grow and serve. It's something that we believe should be the normal Christian life that every believer should do. That God calls us to worship. So we come to church and we worship corporately, but we're to worship him daily in our life as well, honoring him in our work and in our homes. We're called to grow. That's why we encourage people to come, listen to the word, put it into practice in your life. It's why we encourage people to get involved in our ABFs or our small groups or uh, some of the classes we offer where you can be growing in your understanding of the word and growing in understanding the gifts that God has given to you. And then thirdly, we're to serve. Each of us should have an area where we are involved in the church and community based upon our gifts and passions and energy level, age appropriate, whether children or youth or adults, there are places that we can serve in praying and teaching and giving and showing hospitality and evangelism or encouraging. All of those are available. And when we do that, it brings God pleasure and we grow. And what Haggai said to the people here, fourthly, is that when we obey, we receive God's enablement. That's the fourth point in this text. What happens when God's people obey? God shows up in a big way. God's response to the people is found here in verse 13 when he said, I am with you, declares the Lord. That age-old promise that I will be with you. I mean, there's nothing better than that for the believer than to know that God is present and working, that God is with you in your heart, in your life. You can see them at work. You're seeing changes. You're seeing growth. You're experiencing joy in the Christian life. 
I mean, what happens when God's people obey him? Take a look at this list. God is with us. God blesses our work. God provides for our needs. Our hearts are filled with joy. And God is honored and his name is lifted up. And it's not just the people in the church who see it. It's the people in the community or the surrounding area that see it too, that something is happening there that God is at work, that there's something different about you guys, that there is something that has made a significant difference even in our community. And it is the power of God working through his people. The Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the people, and they went back to work on the temple. And I want you to notice this. In verse 15, it says it happened on the 24th day of the sixth month. If you go back to verse 1, Haggai began to speak on the first day of the sixth month. And here, 23 days later, it's a revival. I mean, it's like, it's like something has changed in those 23 days when they went from walking by the ruins of the temple, totally ignoring what God was doing, to the point where they came under conviction by the Spirit of God, and they said, we will do the work. And there was joy. It's amazing. What we see is that God can do in a moment what we can never do in our own strength. We can make all our plans, all our best efforts to work or to do this or that, but if God's not in it, nothing's going to happen. But when God is in it, man, we're just running to keep up. You know, for me, a message like this brings back so much of the events that have happened in our church in the 30 years. I had one man after the first service said, you know, it reminds me of how when this church started. And, it, and from July to October, everything fell into place to begin a new church in Lindstrom. It just, boom, it all came together. And I think of our youth center down at the other end, how it went from one of our leadership planning meetings in January to a year later, we're having the dedication and moving in. And it was a year when, you know, in that planning meeting, it was like God put it on our heart and everybody was saying, we need to do this. We need a place where students can meet. We need this facility to do that. And we shared it with you as a church and you stepped up and you agreed and people pledged $2 million over three years over and above their regular giving. I mean, it was awesome. And we were just running to keep up with the Lord on this thing. And what a wonderful facility that is and to see how God has used it through the years. What happens when God's people obey? God is honored. His name is lifted up, and we experience great joy. That's why we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face to seek his will. And that's why the question I would ask you this morning is are we giving God our very best? We can't rest on the past and on things that have happened then. I'm talking about today. Are we giving God our very best? Are we putting him first in our heart, in our time, in our giving, in our service? Are we hearing him and obeying what he has asked of us? And really only you can answer that question as you come before the Lord. And if there are areas in your life where you've been holding back, today would be a day to say, Lord, here I am, I give this to you. It's time. It's time to serve the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is timeless. It spoke to the generation in which Haggai lived and worked, and it speaks to our day as well. And God, I pray that we would be a church and be individuals who put you first in our time, in the resources that we have, in our energy, in our attitudes, and most of all, in our hearts that we would love you and serve you, that we'd see you at work in our midst, and that you would continue to use us as a church to bring people to Christ, to share the good news, to send laborers out into the harvest who will go literally to the ends of the earth, that you would use us to be growing in Christ and ministering to one another, loving, caring, affirming, encouraging. And thank you, Father, for what you have done in the past and what joy it brings to our heart to look back and see the ways that you have worked. And I pray that we would continue to follow you fully in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.